Thanks, Adam. Well, good morning. Uh, so good to see everyone. Uh, glad to just be together. And if you are new here, you picked a great Sunday to join us. We are in the middle of uh, a long series going through the Gospel of John. And John is an incredible book to go through because it allows us to get an eyewitness, up-close account of who this man, Jesus, really was. Um, to hear him in his own words and to see him up close. Even 2,000 years later, people have all sorts of opinions on Jesus. He has intersected and affected every aspect and arena of our world and society even today. Um, more songs have been sung about him, hospitals built around him, universities started because of him, and books written about him than anyone else in human history. So no matter where you find yourself, Christian or non-Christian, exploring, looking at, and hearing who Jesus is, and in his own words, is well worth our time and effort. And the truth is, is you come at a great time today, even as we look at John 10, because we get an incredible, close, and clear picture of Jesus in his own words about why he came, about who he is, about what his motivations are, about what his heart really is. And so what I want to start off today is by even asking you all a question, a question that I think no matter where you are, whether you're Christian, non-Christian, you're just here, maybe you're just curious, that all of us wrestle with, that every single one of us is driven by every day, and that all of us are motivated to pursue and find out and discover. And that question is, is what is the good life? What is the, what is the good life? Uh, as you think about what the good life is, as you listen to the narratives and the messages around us, our culture and um, society and even uh, our workplaces and friends and families and all sorts of relationships, we ask ourselves, what is the good life? Um, people answer this in all sorts of different ways. I always think even of the great philosopher Forrest Gump, where he told us life is a box of chocolates and you never know what you're going to get. Or you see messages all the time to uh, embrace spontaneity because you only live once. And so maybe that's what life is. Life is spontaneity. Or maybe some of us, it becomes this, this, this hamster wheel of sorts or this treadmill of accomplishment, of climbing the corporate ladder, of making it a little bit further about in some ways making our name known and a mark in a certain arena or area of life. Or maybe for some of us, it feels a little bit like ants preparing for winter, where we hoard and gather as much stuff as we can, and that will bring us the comfort and security that life is really about. In fact, you and I, I would argue, are much more on a quest for answering this question than we are a truth quest. Sometimes we think we're really just after truth, but I would argue we're much more interested in asking ourselves what will make us happy, what will bring us joy. Uh, I come from Las Vegas, and it's a city based around people trying to answer this question. And it sells an incredible narrative, a powerful message. It markets a powerful message of what is the good life. It's a place where people go in many ways to pursue what they believe will be the good life. Or even as you look at our founding documents and our Declaration of Independence, what does it say? You guys remember from history class in high school, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Just another way of saying the good life, what will bring you joy, what will bring you happiness. Uh, the great Danish philosopher, Blaise Pascal, he said this, all men and women seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it, the same, the desire is the same for both, attended to with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object, 
That is the motive of every action of every man and woman, even of those who hang themselves. I believe Blaise Pascal's right. We're motivated by pleasure. We're motivated by happiness. We're motivated by this quest for the good life. I think Jesus has some incredibly powerful things to say to us to, today. And I think for a lot of us, maybe we, we've been fed or we're used to a message of religion and the message of Jesus, of God in some ways being the, the cosmic killjoy or the one who comes to squelch what we really want. And so because Jesus represents God, we've distanced ourselves from even investigating or considering what Jesus would have to say because it seems like, if anything, he's definitely not congruent with what I would envision the good life really being. So every single one of us, as we, 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 we go to work tomorrow, as we lead our lives, as we lead in our workplaces, as we pursue our education, we're asking those questions. What is the good life? What is it all about? So we pick it up in John 10, and last week we saw this incredible miracle of Jesus getting a little muddy, a little dirty, bending down, spitting in the mud, rubbing it on a guy's face, and giving him eyes to see. This obviously outraged some of the religious folks because in some ways they thought Jesus was violating the rules, um, which is always peculiar. When you heal someone, the proper response is not to point to policy. Instead, it should be to point to the miracle. These folks go right to policy, and we pick it up right in that same situation. Jesus wants to make clear to them that that miracle and what we've seen him doing up to this point is leading us to see what we're going to see in John 10 today which is who he is, why he's come, why he's doing the things that he's doing. So let's look at the first couple verses, John 10, verses 1 through 6. It says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in another way, the man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This was a figure of speech that Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Okay, so what's going on here is Jesus is making it abundantly clear that you, you religious leaders, you folks that in some ways have been ruling the culture, you've been setting the tone, you've been influencing to the people what the good life looks like, you have in reality been taking advantage of the sheep. You've been oppressing the sheep. You've been exploiting God's people. You've been piling up heavy burden and obligation and rules upon these people instead of pointing them to living water. Instead of pointing them to true life, instead of pushing them and leading them and guiding them into freedom. When we think of the religious leaders, the Pharisees of this situation, what we need to understand is not necessarily that these are just the people running the churches. Oh no, it would have been so much more in a sense, these are the culture makers. These are the people that set the tone for what life will look like, the values that will be shared, the practices of the people, and everything in between. It was a holistic understanding that these are the people that would control the culture. And what Jesus is saying is that you guys have implemented, you've created, you've set up a culture that is altogether exploitive, it is cumbersome, it is burdensome, and it is death for my people. And so I've come, I've come to give them freedom. And Jesus is speaking at almost two different levels here. So he's speaking to the Pharisees, but he's also speaking to a deeper reality. 
Reality that enslaves us, not just because of the people around us, but rather because of our, our, real, our, our slavery to Satan, sin, and death. Jesus is speaking to both of these levels. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament story at all, this should kind of bring up images and it should kind of make your mind immediately begin to think of Psalm 23, which tells us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He's with me even when life is difficult and things are falling apart. Jesus is picking up on this Old Testament imagery of shepherd. And this is really significant because here's why. A shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A shepherd in this culture was often alone with his sheep in dark places where there was no security system, where there was no shotgun, but there were real enemies that came to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus is saying, I'm the shepherd. I'm the shepherd who's come to love these people, to serve these people. And the biggest outrage of all, the one that is, is most offensive to Jesus, is the very ones who would call themselves the shepherds, the ones that would call themselves the protector of the people, are actually the ones that have been exploiting the sheep the most. Um, Ezekiel 34 will come up here, and I want you guys to see this. I'll read it to you. It's a little small on there. And Jesus is, I, I think he's picking up on Ezekiel 34. Listen to this. This is the Lord speaking in Ezekiel. He says, the son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel. And he says to them, even the shepherds, thus saith the Lord, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. Once again, they haven't been looking out for God's people. Instead, they've been taking advantage of God's people for their own benefit. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? Should you not be loving the sheep, protecting the sheep, knowing the sheep, walking with the sheep, laying down your life for the sake of the sheep? Shouldn't that be your agenda? Instead, verse 3, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and with harshness you have ruled over them. So they have scattered because there was no shepherd And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, God surely, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not, and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, your shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, God behold, God behold, I am against the shepherds, and I require my sheep at their hand to put a stop to the feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, and they may not be food for them. The reason I read such a lengthy part of Ezekiel is I want you to see that Jesus' heart, he's in some ways, he's, he's, he's hearkening right back to Ezekiel 34. These are men, as they're hearing Jesus say, I'm the good shepherd who lays down my life. You men, on the other hand, have been taking advantage of these sheep. They would have immediately thought of Ezekiel 34. This would have been running through their minds. A lot of these guys had the entire Old Testament memorized. They would have immediately been aware of this. 
They would have been aware. This would have sounded incredibly offensive to them. They would have known what Jesus was getting at. What he was basically saying is, is, is I sent you with this incredible responsibility, this weighty task to care for my people, to love my people, to serve my people, to, 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 to do all you could, even to the extent of laying down your life. And instead, you've found ways to take advantage of them. You've found ways to exploit them. You've found ways to abuse them. And so God hears those cries. And Jesus is the answer of the Lord hearing those prayers of the Israelites, waiting for the true and the good shepherd to come, to be near, to serve them. And what do we know about Jesus? Jesus is saying he's a good shepherd. What do we know? Well, we'll see it a little bit more in this passage, but what you need to know is when Jesus says he's the shepherd, he's not the type of shepherd like a boss or a ruler who just dictates orders and tells people to get their acts together and to work harder and to try more. Instead, he's the shepherd who lays down his life. He leads people to greener pastures, places where they can flourish, places where they'll have peace, places where they can find rest. What does Jesus do for his bride? The church, he lays down his life. When you see shepherd here, you need to think of sacrificial leader. Not one who barks orders, but rather one who is willing to serve. Serve all the way to death on a cross. Now, of course, it goes without saying, and it's kind of obvious, but you and I, we're the, we're the sheep in this passage. We're the sheep. Um, I didn't grow up on a farm. I don't know a lot about sheep. I read some articles this week, and I'll tell you, sheep do not have the best reputation when it comes to intelligence or smartness or even being able to control their own fate or to getting their act together. In fact, that's why they need a shepherd. And so in our day and age, this might seem a little bit offensive, but here's what I would ask you. Here's what I'd say to you. Do you have times in your life where you don't know what's going to happen next? where the future seems undetermined, where it seems unclear of where you should go? Do you ever have times where you just completely have made a mess of things? Where despite your best intentions and all your best efforts and all of your intellect, you've managed to make a mess of things? Have you ever had those moments where you just feel weak and out of place and confused and lost and like you don't fit in? That's a sheep. That's us. That's our human condition. That's our reality. Whether we like to admit it or not, we are so much more close to this reality of being sheep in places and spaces where we often don't know what we're going to do, where we don't know what's next, where we're not sure where we should go, where we make a mess of things, where our plans do not work out. And what we see is Jesus comes and he offers to be our shepherd. He offers to guide us. And not in a way in which, once again, he just comes to put his his stamp on us, but rather to lead us to green pastures, to lead us to places where we can flourish and thrive and we can have true life. Verse 3 says one of the most significant things in all the Bible. If we can go back to the previous slide, I want you guys to see this in verse 3. Verse 3 says, To him... The gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. One of the hardest theological truths for us to ever believe and understand is also the most simplest and ones that kids understand. And that's that God loves us. That God genuinely loves us. 
Uh, we sing to our girls all the time before bed, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I, I love that song because it, it often reminds me of this, this truth that I've heard a million times, but still needs to penetrate the dark crevices, the places of brokenness, even in my own heart and my own life, that God loves me, that God is for me. And as verse 3 tells me, this is spoken to you and I, that he knows my name. He knows your name. God is, is, is not the DMV. You are not another number in line. You are not a washer and dryer coming off the assembly line, but rather you are a child of God in which he knows your name. A relationship with God, um, us praying, us interacting with God is not like calling the cable company where you are another account number, where you are another lost person in a long line of anonymous folks, but rather you are known, you are loved, you are cherished, you are delighted in. God loves you. He's for you. He died for you. Not for a a big random sack of people in the broad categorical sense, but rather you. He knew you before the foundations of the earth. He knit you together in your mother's womb. And he knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. He has such intricate detail, care, and concern for your life. He knows all of tomorrow. He knows all of your days. God loves you. Sometimes a better way for us to even hear that, because that just becomes something we get so used to, that that we, we, we just almost build up this defense to it, like almost an inoculation of sorts. It's to to be reminded that God likes you. He delights in you. He's enthralled with you. He's for you. Here's the thing. Because God likes you, because he's a shepherd, he brings you into the fold. He brings you into a family. He brings you into a place where you belong, where you matter. The beautiful parables that are told in Luke 15. In Luke 15, you could just read it for the next year and, and, and you still wouldn't plumb the depths of it. It tells three very short, simple parables. One about the prodigal son that we're all very familiar with. One about the, the lost coin. And the other one about the lost sheep in which, which the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. And maybe you're the one today. Maybe you're the one who's strayed. Maybe you're the one who feels very far from God. Maybe God seems distant. Maybe he seems like he's unapproving of you. Maybe he seems like someone who could never accept you or embrace you. And I'll just tell you, friends, you're not here by accident today, but rather you're here because God is wooing you. He's pursuing you. He's coming after you. No matter where you find yourself, God is for you. He loves you. He cares about you. And he's after you. Jesus knows our names. He knows our future. And not just a future you. He knows you right now. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to go out and do a bunch of good deeds or stop doing a certain behavior for three months or have a cooling off period or do your own form of atonement in which you try to get your act together for a little while before you're presentable in church or wherever. But rather, this is the place. This is the space for messiness. The church. The church. What's fascinating as you you read Jesus, especially interacting with the self-righteous, 
those who are very moralistic and, and those who reject, those who judge others, especially in the Gospels, is the self-righteous usually self-select out of God's community. They usually self-select. We've seen that the last couple weeks. They choose over and over and over to reject Jesus, to push themselves outside of the confines of the life and the prosperity and the joy and the peace that Jesus offers. Rather, the church, God's people, is the very place for those who are most broken, for those who feel like they are the most wayward, for those who feel like they are the most hopeless. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who is for you. And he knows your name. He loves you. Jesus gets to the crux of the matter in our next couple of verses. I want us to look at this together in John 7 through 10. And we're going to spend a good amount of the remaining time just here. Um, this is one of those sections of Scripture that even if you're not a Christian, you've probably heard this before. Um, it's one of those that uh, really speaks to what we're talking about today. What is the good life? It's what it says, John 7. Or verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Ezekiel 34. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That means a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of safety. And here we go. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came that they may have life and have life abundantly. So Jesus is getting to the very purpose of why he came. Why did Jesus come? Did he come so everyone could get their act together, so we could perform all the requirements and the laws of the Old Testament? No. Jesus came so that you may have life. Now, it seems very incongruent often with how we picture Jesus and how we even picture God, and that's probably because we have a warped understanding of what's meant by life or what's even meant by freedom. For some, freedom means the ability and the right to act on whatever urge I have whenever I have that urge. And what Jesus is saying instead is, I come so that you may be exactly what you were meant to be, a child of God free from sickness, Satan, sin, and death. You were made to flourish in relationship with God. God made you so that you would know him, so you would have intimacy with him, so you'd be close to him. And what sin does, sin isn't just, oh, you did wrong, go stand in the corner. Sin is separation. Separation from God, separation from others, separation even from ourselves. What Jesus says is, I've come. I've come that you may have life. I've come so that you may have peace. And you can chase, you can run after it. In fact, we see Paul do this all throughout the Old Testament. You can chase after prestige. You can chase after position. You can chase after power or possessions. And they're not going to do it. You're still going to come up empty. You're still going to come up unsatisfied. You're still going to come up saying that was a disappointment. Just like watching those first, you know, three remakes of those Star Wars movies. You know, you walk out afterward, you're like, I waited all that time for that, and so I, I don't know about everyone getting their hopes up for the new one, but I hope, I hope it's not the same experience. And what Paul says, Paul says, I had all of that. I had prestige, I had power, I had possessions, I had everything you could ever want, and it was all rubbish. It was all worthless, because still inside, I found myself separated from my maker. I found myself separated from the God of the universe, 
And there was something that just could not satisfy that aching longing to know who God is because I was made by God. And something that's made by someone has an innate need to have itself explained by the one who makes it. Uh, Let me see if I can say that another way. If you make something, if you are the one who designs it, puts it together, crafts it, molds it, you are going to be the one who best explains what it's for. That's why we often ask an artist for their interpretation of what they design or what they craft or what they make. Or if you work in a a wood shop or or something of that nature, you're the one who who crafts it and builds it and puts it together. You're the one who's going to be able to tell us what it is for. Um, here's one of those things, and we have a lot of young people at Redemption, and I just want to tell you guys this, and and the longer you go through life, I'm I'm continuing to learn this, is that life is is much more about the the who you have than the what you have. When we think of what is the good life, life is much more about who you have than what you have. It starts with God, but it also just pervades and flows over into all of our relationships. We all learn this at a really young age. Think back when you were a kid didn't matter what you really had as long as you had your friends. Oftentimes I found myself just as long as I had my circle, as long as I had my friends, it didn't matter as long as we were together. Or think of those college years when you're college poor, when your college broke. How do you remember them with fondness? Why? Because it wasn't the what you had, it was the who you had. It was the who's, it wasn't the what's. Or think about when you're a newlywed and you're just starting out and you're you're poor and broke and you're dreaming of the house you one day want to have or the, the, the trips you want to take or the places you want to go or the things you want to do. But you know what? In those moments when you have each other, they're sweet because it's the who you have instead of the what you have. And we live in a time and a place where often the marketing comes wave after wave after wave and it never really delivers. It's the promises of once you get this, this whatever it is, fill in the blank, this object, this stuff, whatever it might be, then you'll finally be happy. Um, I don't know. iPhones are always a great example of that. As soon as you get yours, you immediately are waiting to find out what the next one's going to be like and how it's going to be better than the one you have. And what I would say is that anything, anything that can lose, anything that can age out of its happiness for you really wasn't happiness to begin with. It was almost just this shot of emotional happiness, but it doesn't last. It doesn't sustain us. And when we die, we will never really have stuff regrets. We'll have relational regrets. No one's going to be on their deathbed saying, man, I wish I could just get 10 more minutes with my shoe collection. Or, or wheel me out to the parking lot so I can see my car for the last time. No, you're going to want your family. You're going to want your friends. You're going to want to be rich in relationships. Because it's not the who you have, it's the what you have. And that who starts with Jesus. Good life starts with Jesus, and then that flows to us, loving God and loving people, pouring ourselves out for the sake of others. And so Jesus, in verse 10, he speaks of these, go back one, he speaks of these thieves and robbers. These thieves and robbers. And as I said before, Jesus is clearly speaking to his audience. He's speaking to some of the Pharisees that have burdened, that have weighed down that have been overly oppressive with his people, but I think he's also speaking to some of the things that come into our life that rob us of true joy, that steal from us true contentment and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. He's speaking of the things that you and I, even as the song we were singing this morning and come now found, that we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love and pursue those things, to chase after those things, thinking they are the good life. Uh, Tim Keller 
A lot of you are probably familiar with him. He's a pastor in New York City. Uh, last couple of years, he's been writing a ton on just idolatry. And he says, oftentimes, people in our day and age, they'll think of an idol as something that's in a, a pagan context, of something that's on a shelf, a wooden object. And maybe you look at that idol and think how primitive that someone would worship. And, and his argument is, is actually that's a very reductionistic and narrow understanding even of what idolatry is. And rather, idolatry is anything we think that will save us Anything we think that will bring us joy, anything we think that if we have to have this in order to finally find meaning, satisfaction, comfort, rest, and peace. Here's how you know what your idol is, is when it shakes, you shake. When it trembles, you tremble. When it crumbles, you crumble. When it's pressed, you're pressed. When it's stressed, you stress. Um, There's a couple that I really want us to look at. Some of the four biggest idols, I call them just kind of the four ones that really sum up most of the other ones. We'll have them up here on a slide. Uh, The four root idols that steal life away from us. And all of us, to different degrees, we, we struggle with all of these, but every single one of them maybe has a special attachment to us. And knowing what they are, seeing what they are, and then understanding the lie that comes around them is incredibly powerful for us in being liberated and freed from them. Because these idols, they always overpromise and they never deliver. In fact, all they do is they take. They always demand more and they always want to take away life. And Jesus says, I come to offer the good life, and instead we often settle for idols. The first one up here is, is power. Is power. Uh, a longing for influence or to always have your way. We live in a culture that's built on, in some ways, telling us that if we just have more power, if we can just get our way, or maybe we feel like the person above us at work has too much power, and they always seem to get their way. And so there's an idol of power. We see this in politics. We see this in business. We think that power, in some ways, leads to to life, that it leads to freedom, that it leads to joy, that if I can just be the one who gets my way, if I just have my say, then finally life will go my way. I mean, I'm not going to ask us to raise hands, but how many of us in this room have honestly thought, I know I have, they just made me president, I could fix a lot of this. I could do better than whoever. What that is, is it's arrogant, but it's also me wanting power. Thinking that if I just had power, things would be different. Let's make it more practical, though. What about in your family? Do you work together? Do you compromise? Do you listen? Do you love? Do you serve? Or do you just have kind of that feeling, that general attitude of people who would just do what I want? If I could just get control of this place, if I could just get everyone to fall in line, then things would be the way they're supposed to be. Man, I I know I do. I'm guilty of that one a lot. Uh, Number two, control. Control. A longing to have everything go according to my plan. These are folks that in some ways you make your plan, you decide how things should go. You maybe when you invite people over for dinner, it's Thanksgiving or a holiday, you, you, you envision in your mind where everyone's going to set and where, where the conversations everyone's going to have and the things everyone's going to eat and you have it all mapped out in your mind. Or maybe when you look at your day, if it goes off kilter in one bit or your schedule gets violated in some form or fashion or someone inconveniences you, you become outraged. Because really for you, control, control becomes your guide. You feel most safe when you can control what happens next. And this is why when life gets chaotic, when the trials, when the storms, when the obstacles arise, you freak out. You almost become unhinged. You shake your fist at God. 
Because in some ways, God's job is to make sure that you can maintain control. Control has become your idol. Number three, comfort. This is huge, especially in the American context. For a lot of us, we've been sold the the narrative and the myth that the goal of your life is to make it to retirement so you can just be comfortable. That we just need more easy chairs, we just need more relaxing vacations, we just need places of rest, we need to have man caves and places where we can check out and be comfortable. That comfort becomes our guiding ethic, that we pursue comfort at all costs, that comfort gets in the way of even community or sacrifice or serving other people. I think that's huge for a lot of us. And the last one, I think this one might be the most convicting for me, is approval. Not God's approval, but rather the approval of other people. Rather the approval of saying, those around me, I need them to like me, I need them to affirm me, I need them to think well of me. And you begin to live for an audience of many instead of an audience of one. And here's what happens. When you begin to make approval your ultimate idol, the thing that you live for, that everyone likes you, that everyone's for you, that everyone thinks well of you, you eventually lose you. It's like a shapeshifter of sorts. You, you, You shape who you are based on your audience. You're a different person at work than you are at home. You're a different person at home than you are with your friends. And you're always changing to based on the, the, the expectations of those around you. You become a shapeshifter. And in the midst of that, you lose yourself. Here's what I want us to see about all four of these. All four of these idols, they eventually will destroy you. They kill community. They kill community. If you want to be in control, if you always want to have your way, if everything needs to go according to your plan, if you always want to be comfortable and you want everyone to like you, community will be a nightmare. It'll be impossible. And so many of us walk through life going, man, I'd really like to have more close friends. I'd really like to have a more meaningful relationship with God. But ultimately, ultimately, are we willing to lay down these things? Are we willing to repent of these idols? Are we willing to let go of our need to control, our need to be liked by everyone, our need to be comfort? Are we willing to let go of these things? I think as a church, this is what we want to have, this is what we really need to ask ourselves. If we're going to be a place that's welcoming to people, if we're going to be a place that honestly lives out what Jesus has for us, that we would be a place that lay aside our needs, that like Jesus, we would lay down our preferences, our priorities, and the things that we want for the sake of others, these things have to go. Comfort cannot be our primary focus. Not everyone's going to like us always. That doesn't mean we do things to, to be jerks or be offensive to others. But it does mean, what does it look like for us to, to serve in a way that frees us? Or control. We're not going to be able to control everything. We're not going to be able to manage everything. I, I think about even the last year of my life, and I think approval, as I was saying before, is, has been a hard one. Um, and I say that because the truth of the matter is, is until I'm willing to be honest about that and say, Lord, I want people to like me. I want people to be for me. I want people to be proud of me. Then I can't be free of it. And so for a lot of you guys that are in life groups, a lot of you guys that are in community and have people that know you, this is the week. This is the week in which you have these conversations where you're honest about what your idols might be where you talk about where you're really struggling, 
I believe a lot of us, especially if, if you're a Christian and you're in this room this morning, I know, I know what you want is you want the good life. You want a deeper relationship with Jesus. You want to experience Jesus. You want to walk closely with Jesus. You want to know who Jesus is. And I think he's, he's begging you. He's saying, let down those idols. Let them go. Forsake them. Move away from them so that you may have the good life. A place where you can come into green pastures, a place where you can be loved regardless of how the world feels about you, a place where you don't have to be in control because God's in control, the place that even when life and all of its circumstances don't go your way and you're not comfortable at all, you're comforted by Christ. Jesus is the final and ultimate fulfillment of all these things because he is the good shepherd. He is the one that protects us and keeps us safe so we don't have to be in control. He's the one that leads us to green pastures so that we can be provided for and so that we are having our needs met. He's the one that says, I know your name. I love you. I'm for you. I care about you. So much so that Jesus is not just a person who talks a big game, but he walks the walk. Look at John 11 through 18 with me as we, we close out. This is what it says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep, for I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the charge that I received from my Father. Jesus paints us this incredible picture that his life is not just so that he comes and does a magic show and entertains people, but all of his life is oriented toward him building a people, a people who are loved by God, a people who know God, a people who are led into freedom. And he even gives us glimpses of you and I here today. He even says, there's sheep who are mine and they're not even here right now, but they'll know my voice. They'll know who I am. And here we are 2,000 years later in Seattle and Jesus is still gathering his sheep. Jesus is still wooing. He's still inviting. And for some of you this morning, that's an invitation, a reminder to return to Jesus, to come back to Jesus, to forsake those idols that will only destroy you and let you down. And for others of you, this is the moment in which you come into the fold, in which you surrender to Jesus, in which you come to Jesus, in which you realize that Jesus has grace upon grace for you because he's been building one church, he's been building one community, and he'll continue to build this fold, this family of God, this people of God, until he returns. Jesus has been saving people for thousands of years, and you and I are testaments to that. People say they don't see miracles anymore, and I look around and I see miracles all throughout this room. I see lives that would have never been changed were it for the grace of God, for the good shepherd. And if I, if I had a couple hours, I'd tell you guys my story, and you would find it miraculous that I'm up here talking about Jesus. And those stories are evident all throughout this room. 
as the Holy Spirit still continues to, to change lives, to do the miraculous, to invite people, to woo people, to bring people into the fold. And how does Jesus do this? Well, Jesus does this not by war, or he doesn't do this by some type of, uh, of new strategy, or he doesn't do this by conquering Rome, which is even what a lot of people expected him at the time. Instead, he does this by laying down his life. Jesus lays down his life, and not in a sense in which he's helpless or he's a victim, but rather he does it in a sense that he can take his life back up again. I don't know about you, but I'm afraid of losing my life. Like, let's, let's just be honest. There's certain places I stay out of them or I don't go to them at certain times of day because I don't want to lose my life. And we all do things, and rightfully so, to protect our life. Jesus says right here in this passage, I don't even have to worry about losing my life because in reality, if I lay down my life, I'm the one who can pick it back up again. You'd have to be insane to make this kind of statement, or you would have to be God, knowing that you have power and control and final authority over death. Jesus rules and reigns over death. And so he lays down his life for his sheep. You are blood-bought sheep of Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross and he suffers a humiliating, embarrassing death that did not belong to him, but he's willing to lay down his life for you. Such love as that. This is love that's demonstrated. This isn't just talk. This isn't just someone trying to boast. But this is someone who's willing to lay down their life to demonstrate sacrificial love. Jesus knows your name. Jesus loves you. Jesus demonstrates his love for you. And Jesus gives you freedom so that you may have life. This is, this is the gospel. This is, this is who Jesus is. This is the good news. Every single one of us in this room, we are in some ways broken and flawed and messed up and in need of grace. And Jesus buys that very grace that we need. Um, I was thinking about this week. Jesus comes and he, he takes us who haven't necessarily broken the law, but instead we've been broken by the law. It's like running up against a concrete wall. You're not going to win. And when you and I run up against a concrete wall of the law, of all the things we're required to do, of all the things we must do to be good, we'll be shattered. Rather, Jesus comes and he fulfills, he dismantles that law so that we'll have rest in him. We're transformed by that. Not so that you just get your stamp and you get to go to heaven, but rather so that you get to come into the fold of God. You get to come into green pastures. You get to be known by the good shepherd. And so how does this close out? Verses 19 through 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon, and he is insane. Who will listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And I would say absolutely not, but God can. A demon cannot open eyes, but Jesus can. And so we get into these conversations. We always miss the issue. We always skirt right past what's really taking place. And even these guys, they're so blinded by their idolatry of wanting to be control and wanting to have comfort and wanting to have power that they get into this weird conversation about whether Jesus is insane. So they just need to watch 
just need to watch. This is the man who will, in, in a matter of months from when this happens, lays down his life and will pick it up again. This is the God-man. This is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who brings you and I comfort, the one who brings you and I peace, the one who gives us final approval, and the one who loves us and knows us by name. And that, that's the best life.